You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And that leads us to the next part of our time together that I have the pleasure of leading us through. And so if you will join me then, as is our custom, alongside a journey our church has been on over the last couple of years in Matthew chapter 25. That is the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, uh, do me a favor. You'll see a paperback Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. Make that a gift to you if you don't own a Bible. But then again, make that a gift to someone else you know that doesn't own a Bible. And so we will be in Matthew chapter 25. That's the first book of the New Testament. And the first four books in the New Testament are called Gospels. That word gospel you hear us say a lot around here, it's, it's the word that simply just means good news. That is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the first four gospels, or that is, the good news of the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' teaching and his life and his death and his resurrection. And Matthew has been telling us the, his eyewitness testimony of all that he saw Jesus accomplish, teach, and even as we find ourselves in the 25th chapter, we're in what we'll call like the last third of the gospel. Now, the reason that's important, and it's similar across all four of the Gospels, is that many, many commentators would say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are basically passion narratives. That is, they're narratives of the suffering of Jesus with an extended introduction. Because the first two-thirds of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has covered 30 to 33 years of Jesus' life, and potentially even 2,000 years or more when he tells the genealogy of Jesus. And so he spent the first two-thirds covering several decades of Jesus' life, And in the last third, he covers one single week. And all of the Gospels do this. That is that what Jesus came to accomplish for his people, he accomplished as the Gospel writer zooms in on this last week of Jesus' life. Now, as he entered into Jerusalem for this this kind of grand entrance, you would expect all the people who have anticipated his coming wanted God to come and make all things new. You would expect them to be really excited. And some kind of were. But one of the more powerful things we see here is that as Jesus enters in, it confronts maybe an assumption that we can regularly make, that you get hung on a cross by telling people things that they want to hear, when in fact you get hung on a cross by telling things to people that they do not want to hear at all. And so what has happened since Jesus entered into Jerusalem is a series of controversies. In fact, we find ourselves in the last part of what's called the fifth of Matthew's major discourses. That is, the first of Matthew's major discourses to the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous thing ever ever recorded. And it starts with a series of blessings that, that may be familiar to you. Blessed is the one, right? Blessed are the, those who humble and thirst, or hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. These blessings for those who would live in this certain way. But this last discourse is a picture of all things coming to an end that starts with a series of curses. A series of curses that then is a picture of the judgment that they will experience in the century to come. We saw that last week, as well as the judgment that will come when he returns to make all things new. So as I shared with you over the last couple of, uh, of, of weeks, uh, lo and behold, it's the beginning of 2024. Let's start 2024 with a bang with curses. And if you brought a friend today, I'm really glad because we're going to talk about judgment day. Yay. Now, we're going to read the whole of chapter 25. Now, just like the last couple of weeks, that's a fairly large chunk of the Bible. Now, uh, a couple of things I want you to know. One, it's certainly the case that you're going to maybe space out. Uh, you won't be able to, your attention span won't handle it. You go someplace green and nice, it has palm trees. I hope it's amazing, right? 
pay close attention to the thing that drives maybe you back into this room, the thing that, that grabs, your, your, grabs your focus and brings you back here to this room. Because my goal here is to regularly stretch your attention span for the reading and the teaching of God's Word. Think of it this way. I regularly want to expand your capacity to hear from God. Not just this morning, but throughout the rest of this week and the rest of your life. But the second thing that I think we accomplish when we do this, is, which is our custom as a church to go through books of the Bible, is that we let the context of this particular passage give us its meaning. Now, Jesus warned people, even this last week in the previous chapter, that several people would come along and mislead and deceive. And one of the most powerful ways to mislead and to deceive is to simply take the words of Jesus out of their context. And so you'll see some fairly familiar uh, potentially familiar uh, parables that we'll find here in chapter 25, and I want more than anything for you to see them in context. So it'll take several, maybe five to seven minutes as we read through it, um, depending on how, I guess, uh, demonstrative, demonstrative I am in reading it. Uh, but join me. Uh, we're going to think about judgment of the things to come, and I want to contend to you that that's actually good news. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with, oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had made the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right hand, on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick and in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want to begin our time as many of the sections of Scripture of Matthew have done with a question. Right now, where you're sitting, what are you waiting for? Right now, where you are, what are you waiting for? And it's okay if one of your answers is, I'm waiting for the end of this sermon, right? Best place uh, in the scriptures to start with some honesty. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Think of it this way. What are you anticipating? Maybe what is it that you're looking for on the horizon? But for many of you, the question might be different. It might be, what are you dreading? What are you waiting for? What's coming up? What's in the future that has not yet been realized and you're currently waiting for? Because as you answer that question, as, as shallow and superficial and even maybe like pertaining to today, or maybe more deeply, things that you're waiting for this week, this month, or even in your life, 
As you answer that question, I think one of the observations and insights that this chapter gives us is this, that what you do while you are waiting might be the most important thing about you. As I ask, what are you waiting for? Another question might be to ask, how well are you waiting? (laughs) How good are you at waiting? What do you find yourself doing when you're waiting? Right? As, as, even as I look in the room, the older all of you get or, or all of you are, at a certain point, you're probably going to go to the DMV to get a driver's license or God help you to get it renewed. And you will wait. In moments like that, maybe you're waiting for a flight. Your plane has been delayed. You're, right, you're, you're waiting on a spouse, a friend. You're, you're waiting on, fill in the blank. What do you tend to do when you're waiting? How do you tend to see that time of waiting? Because how you respond to that, your instinct, your, your natural routine, what you initially do in those moments might be the most important thing about you. This passage of Scripture says that Jesus will come and judge, evaluate all things, every single thing that exists. And the measurement of that judgment is what people do when they're waiting. What do you do when you wait? Right? Do you immediately, I know, I know for many of you, they're like, grab a smartphone, right? Oh, I got time? I'm waiting? Right? Do you find yourself needing to be entertained? Do you find yourself in waiting to just simply want to pass the time? Or, or maybe are you hyperproductive? Maybe the minute you're waiting, you're like, oh good, I have things I need to do. Or maybe you're old school and you're waiting for something and you just sit there. I know, that's crazy. Alone with your own thoughts. Alone with the voice in your own head. Oh, Lord help you, Right? Because what you do when you're waiting is probably the most important thing about you. It says what you value. It says what you believe. It it communicates what you understand about yourself and about reality, about your purpose in the world. And in this passage, we find a couple of parables and a picture of the end that all describe at least a component of the judgment of God on all things with respect to how people are waiting what people are doing in the in-between. For Christians, that is, we are living in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. When He has come the first time to eradicate the penalty of sin, and He will come again, and He will eradicate even every trace of sin. And so this is the third, as it were, collection of parables that Matthew's told us. The first collection, you remember, was in chapter 13. The second collection, which are also about judgment, were in chapters 21 and 22. But Jesus in this last, in this last discord is, discourse is addressing his opponents, giving them warnings. Evil or, or awful things are going to bring about God's judgment. And the last collection of parables we find here, the first one was last week at the end of chapter 24. These second, or the second and third we found and we read just a moment ago. These last, these last parables are connected to his apocalyptic vision of the judgment that would be coming first and foremost in that next century when he predicted the, the destruction of the temple in 7 AD, which is history for us. But also as he predicts the things that will come about for those that are following him, that one day he will come back and make all things new. He will enter back into the suffering and tribulation that they experience and redeem and restore them. And so, this last picture of of the coming judgment is meant to remind all of their disciples that they'll be accountable for their response to Jesus. And the fact that they have trusted in the good news of this kingdom that is coming in Christ 
is no cause for complacency. Because genuine faith, genuine trust in the good news of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished is a lifelong, as we see here, even an eternal project. It's an eternal endeavor. And these three parables, the two we read today, give us at least multiple, in this case, two different angles on that endeavor, on that project. If the last chapter was a picture of, okay, we, we know difficulty is coming, so number one, do not fear, which means anyone who, right, think of, think of anyone who sees the future and, and, and wants to stir you up to fear and doubt. That's the most anti-Christ, unchristian thing to do. He says many will be led astray into doing that. But, but he says the fruitfulness of, of how you'll be waiting will be in the extent to which you're declaring the gospel to the nations. And so, to be fair, most Christians I know who study the Bible and the end times, they do so with one foot in a bunker. But last week was a warning that it's sooner than you think. But that being said, as we heard again, that if no one knows the hour when Christ will return to restore all things, then the warning for this week is that it's longer than you think. And so what do we do in the middle? We wait. We saw in the first two parables, we wait with readiness, with anticipation. We wait as good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And then the last little prediction of Christ's return and how he will see the evidence of who they are is we wait actively. And most people can be separated into two particular categories, I think, in this room. There are those who know Jesus and can't wait for him to come back. And then there are those who aren't in a hurry for Jesus to come back at all because they've got better things to do. So look at the three parts that we read. Let's walk through them together. The first part, a story of bridesmaids. The second section, a, a parable of businessmen. And then the last, a prediction for the, bene- for the benevolent. The bridesmaids, the businessmen, and the benevolent. Here we go. The story of the bridesmaids, I think, encourage us to wait with readiness because the groom and the feast are on the way. And we have to translate a little bit of that. I say bridesmaids because of a few different things. One, as, as readily as I possibly can, as I kind of translate how I believe God speaks to us, it's also to begin to understand and translate what the world speaks to us. And so this parable of ten virgins, five wise and five foolish, I want to warn you, uh, I, I promise you this week, whether it's in what you consume or the media you, you, you encounter, just people, you are living right now in the most hypersexualized time on earth. Um, or at least I can say that because the last time it was this hypersexualized, no one's still alive. And, and so even then, as, as you hear the words 10 virgins, uh, resist the temptation to kind of jump into the cultural view of that as a sexual identity. In fact, we're so hypersexualized, we don't even know how to think about a meaningful life without thinking about sexuality. In fact, now we have to build identities around sexuality as though sexuality is somehow a, a sustainable foundation for your life. But think of these as simply unmarried women. Now, certainly that has sexual implications, but that's not the point of the parable. So I have to kind of read back into the text and, 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 and kind of do a recap of maybe what a wedding would have looked like in Jesus' time. First of all, if you're from an Eastern or more traditional society, this will make more sense because a wedding in a more Eastern or traditional society is going to be, have more revolving around the groom and the father of the groom, the family of the groom, because after all, the groom has come to establish and create a family and invite this other family into his own family. This is the picture of the bridegroom coming. And that being said, the the more westernized or individualistic you you find yourself to be, it goes without saying, and I've had a front row seat to this quite a bit, that weddings tend to be more circulated or focused on the bride and the mother of the bride. 
fact. No judgment here. That's just, the, that's just what it is. But think of this wedding picture, this wedding party, as, as an Eastern, more, more traditional wedding. In fact, if you're from an Eastern culture, you'll also know this. A more Western culture uh, would celebrate a wedding at a particular time, right? This is when it, this is when it happens, and we're going to hire a, a wedding coordinator and a planner to make sure it starts at this time, right, and everything happens on time. If you've ever been to an Eastern celebration, you know that's not the case. It happens when it happens, okay? And so in this case, you get a picture of that as well. The, the party starts when the bridegroom shows up. Who cares what time it is? When he shows up, it's time. And so you get this picture of what I would say is like bridesmaids. Now, now bridesmaids isn't, I don't think, an, an unhelpful word, but at least the most modern equivalent picture of this because the people who would have been attendants for the bride in a wedding like this would have also been unmarried. So think of most weddings you go to, you have a maid or matron of honor. Think of this as these would have all been unmarried women. In fact, in this particular culture, uh, serving in a bridal party like this is one of the most powerful ways that you, in this sense, kind of, and I hate to use this phrase because I know many of you women in this room have heard this phrase and it's been really unhelpful, but think of this as one of them. Uh, This is one of the ways that a woman would put herself out there, right? Sorry, ladies. But this would have been one of the most public ways that an unmarried woman would have served along this other family, and in this sense, been visible to other families in the community that, hey, this, this other young lady is available. All of these kind of help us, I think, focus a lens into what Jesus is illustrating. That there's a way of waiting, in this sense, that Jesus says is unready, doesn't anticipate, isn't prepared, and yet he's inviting you and I to, in faith, trust in his return such that we wait with readiness because the groom is on the way and the feast is on the way. This is a picture of the gospel as we live out in waiting. We wait with readiness, with anticipation. And even though there's a theme of judgment, as I'll come back to in a moment, there's still an anticipation that the groom will come. Now, we've seen this before. A few chapters ago, we saw that one of the parables is, uh, of the kingdom is a parable, again, of a wedding feast where the king throws a party for his son, and, and, and the way that people respond to the invitations is a picture, again, of the kingdom. But in this case, the focus is not on that. The focus is on those who are waiting. And they give us a picture of the Christian life. Now, if this isn't enough, there are people in this room, right now, in this room, who are getting married, right? Uh, you won't have to wonder about them. They'll find you and tell you. They love to talk about it, right? And this, in, uh, this, I believe, is one of the most powerful pictures of the kingdom. And so do me a favor. If you know some people who are getting married, and maybe they, they are getting married and they don't know it yet. They're just, I'm not going to look up, but maybe they're sitting next to each other. Oops. Yeah. Do me a favor, just ask them, how is that? What's that like? Getting married. And they'll tell you some powerful things that I think will illustrate what Jesus is saying. They'll say things like, I can't wait. I just can't wait. They'll say things like, I've been making plans. They'll say things like, I've been sending out invitations. I've been making decorations. Hopefully they'll say something like, I'm not dating other people all in preparation for getting married. But they'll also say some things that will be just as helpful as we look through this lens. They'll say things like it's difficult. They'll say things like the time is passing ever so slowly. 
They can't wait to get there. But they also might say something like, even though that's the case, they might say something like, it's worth the wait. There are people in this room, and they'll tell you, because after all, what a beautiful picture. The party starts when the groom shows up. Not on their timeline. That's certainly the case for us. There's certainly the case for, for you and I as we look around the world and wish that something would come and happen to make things right. So, think of these bridesmaids and their equipping and being ready with their oil and their lamps. Now, that's another, another picture, right? Just think of those are the kind of the uh, accessories that comes with a, a good wedding and celebrating, right? Uh, this is, a, this is a, a, rough, uh, a rough analogy, but think of if you attend a wedding, it might be the case that at the end of the wedding, you, you wait for the bride and the groom to come out and then you throw rice at them because no one knows why. Or maybe you, 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 you love them, but you don't hate birds and you throw bird seed, right? Or, or you throw rose petals, or, right? You get the idea, like, th- these are all kinds of things that you and I would understand. This is how you celebrate. Th- but this, for, this, for this wedding party, that's how they would have celebrated. This party, after all, is going to go into the night. It might even go for the rest of the week. And so the people who anticipate that the timeline of this celebration is around the groom and not themselves will be prepared accordingly. Here's the second thing as you look at the Second parable we, we, we read, there's a lesson there, and it's this, that we wait with humble and grateful investment because the joy of the master is on the way. The joy of the master is on the way. So as we're being prepared, as we're, uh, in this sense, being diligent, and we see a picture of these, let's say, businessmen who were entrusted with a great deal of money. Uh, in fact, we get this picture that the, the whole of this investment of this master was entrusted into the hands of these servants. Now, the, the, the value of talents is going to be hard to translate. The best thing to say, roughly, don't get caught up on it, uh, is, is that this is a significant investment. This would be like someone managing a retirement, right? Managing a life savings. This is a significant investment. These assets that have been handed into the, into the, in, into the care or the stewardship of these servants. And so, look, if we look through this particular lens, we see another lesson, that we are to be humble and grateful. You see that when you look at the third servant, don't you? Each of these two servants, according to their ability, the, the, the master is kind and good, and it's not necessarily that this investment left to them is, is what creates or develops their character. It's more that it exposes it, and the master knows best, and so he invests in these particular people, and, and then you find the response, the, the, the focus of this particular parable is on the third servant that instead of investing it and doubling it, I mean, that's a, what, a gr- what a great investment that would be, right? Double, like put money in the bank, it doubles this year, leave it in the bank, it doubles next year. I mean, that, that's amazing. That's a, that's a beautiful picture of a, of a highly valuable investment, and knowing that even this particular servant, the third servant, just buries it. And notice that when the master comes back, he doesn't mention how much he loves or cares for the master, or that he's grateful or humbled that, that he's entrusted with such a valuable thing. Instead, what does he say? Look at verse 24. I knew you were a hard man. Right? I knew you were practical. I knew you were frugal. I, I knew you made investments even, right, and, and made returns on things that you didn't start yourself. You, you reaped where you did not sow. You would gather where you had scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And so I hid the talent in the ground. But here, here it is. It's all yours. Now notice the judgment that comes upon him. After all, 
he says, I would have taken, you know, I would have taken if you just like, I would have been happy if you just put it in the bank and let it get some interest. That would have been fine. Because you know this, if you have any cash and you've like stowed it away somewhere, it's losing value as we speak. Money itself is, that's not working for something, is by, by virtue of inflation, is decreasing in value. What a beautiful picture, as it were, of the kingdom that we see through this parable. But it wasn't their property, and it wasn't their purpose, and, and it wasn't their time frame. All the while, notice that you get a picture of what it means to readily and boldly and faithfully invest what has been entrusted to these people. Look at what we learned from this. Number one, what they have is not their own. Now, we saw this in, in the parable of the wine press. The, the greatest temptation, for, the greatest temptation for, uh, for human beings is to not want to be humans. And the temptation for those servants was that they wanted to be the owner, not the steward. And in fact, they, they killed all those that reminded them that they were not the owner, even the very son of the owner. In this case, we, I think we see the same thing. There's a lesson. Whatever we have, whatever has been entrusted to you, is not your own. Now, this is, this is especially important because what has been entrusted to you and I is Christ himself. That is that the God of the universe has emptied, as it were, his own bank account and given his son to us. Now, this is an encouragement we find in the rest of the, the New Testament that in Christ, Ephesians tells us, we have every spiritual blessing. Paul tells in the, in the Roman letter that if we know that Christ has been given by the Father, how will God not also give us all the other blessings? How will he not, how, why would he withhold any of these other things? We see this as a, a treasure that has been given to us. It's not our own. The second thing I think it means is that there is, a, as we see, there's a joy for those who operate as stewards and not owners. This is an encouragement to you and to me. Because we regularly do not like what has been stewarded to us. I know, I, I know wherever, wherever you are in this room, I know many of your stories include a lot of disappointment, a lot of difficulty. And as you come into this room, whatever you bring into this room, you wish you had something else. And I, that's a, that is a human temptation. That is, that is a natural temptation, right? I share this regularly. Mine's silly. It's childish. Uh, but I was really hoping God would entrust to me uh, a major league baseball career. That's just, that's what I thought was going to happen. Um, thought that, and, and so I, most of the other things that happened in my life, I'm like, this is second best. This is not as good. But notice that when the master returns, there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no disappointment. What is it? There's joy. There's joy. Joy that... That whatever he had entrusted to their care was not in shame and guilt, but was good. It was right and had a joyful outcome. That's why I love, I love like a, you know, any sort of like the personality or evaluation profiles, like a Neogram or like a Myers-Briggs personality profile. Whatever you find out you are, you wish you were something else. Right? You find, you, any, and I've never seen anyone, who, you know, unless they're just fairly narcissistic, who's like, oh yeah, I'm not like, yeah, totally that. That's amazing. I'm the best. I won, right? I won the personality profile, right? But most people, when they find out, kind of, in this case, what they've been entrusted with, how God has made them, most of them are pretty frustrated, and they wish there were something else. Be encouraged if that's you in this room. Look, the Master has entrusted to you and to me His very Son and every bit of time, talent, and treasure that you and I have. Now, do you get it? We humbly and gratefully invest it. I think one of the things I learned uh, several years ago that was, that's been really helpful for me, I've tried to hold on to, is Faith for you and I will regularly feel like risk. Faith will feel, you'll experience it, probably like these stewards 
as risk. It will feel like gambling. It will feel like taking something that's not your own, which on one hand is house is money, so I say run with it, but notice that there's an inherent risk, but there's also an inherent value because not necessarily because of their own value or, or their own ability, but, but because the value of what was entrusted to their care was multiplied. This is our view of the Christian life. You and I have been entrusted with the gospel. You and I have been entrusted with the very presence of God. Let's risk it. Let's invest it. Let's double it. Because notice the wicked servant wasn't wicked because he lost the money, right? He wasn't wicked because he invested it and failed. He was wicked because he did not invest it at all. It's clear that the heart of this servant is not tied up with the interests of the master at all. So let that warning be heeded. Here's the third thing we see in the, this kind of final summary of the Son of Man returning. That's the language of the prophet Daniel. When, when Christ comes back and comes, you'll know it. We saw it last week. You won't mistake it. The lesson here is that we wait with generous benevolence because our great benefactor is on the way. Notice how he says, in, starting in verse 31, that the evidence that he will have separated those on his right, those that know him, his sheep as it were, and those on his left, will be something that he does as the shepherd. He will come in glory to do just that. He will separate them. He will judge them. And they won't know it. They won't have any idea. But as he tells them, look, the evidence that you belong to me is that you were benevolent. You were compassionate. You cared about people in need. A couple of things. Notice the grace in this and the order. The order is very important. Notice that the Son of Man returns on the glorious throne and separates the people, and then reveals to them the evidence, or the, is that, is that word like the, the it was the, the revelation of who they were. They were, in fact, sheep. Now, again, this is where going fast over this particular thing can be helpful. If you get bogged down in the details, um, if somebody who's been raised on a, on a goat farm here would love to tell you more about this, I'm not that person. But think of like the language of the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep and my sheep know my name. The ones he sets aside are the ones he knows. The ones he says, this one is mine. And the ones who do not, who have rejected him, are visible in this other way. The order is important though. His judging and separating precedes the explanation of their actions. Think of it this way. This is the Gospel. We are not sheep because we do all these things. We begin to do all these things because we are sheep. We do not obey God in order that He would save us from our sin. The Gospel is this. We obey God because we are saved from our sin. And this is the Gospel paradox. We begin to behave according to our identity. The new identity. The, the new life and new hope that He has given to us. It's not that we have an identity by our behavior. We have our identity first that's revealed in our behavior. After all, you see this again in the Gospel of John when Jesus says to John, who wants to know, are you the Messiah? What does He say? Look at the works. The works are where Jesus is. The works are evidence that you are Jesus' people. So this is not a great commission to philanthropy. Otherwise, we would wrap up right here. Say, hey, guys, go help people. Go alleviate suffering. Go alleviate the effects of poverty. Alleviate the effects of, of, of hardship and oppression in the world. Right? Th that's where we would end. But, but that's not the lesson here. The lesson here is that the evidence of being a disciple is that you now have a heart toward those needs. 
Service follows transformation by Jesus. Think of it this way. Jesus separates the sheep before he describes their works. His salvation, his separating, making those his own, knowing his sheep by, and they know his name and his voice. He knows their name, he knows their voice. He didn't separate them after their works. This is important because each of these parables leads us to a temptation. These parables are about Jesus, they're not about you. These parables are a revelation of the character of Jesus. While there can be incredible insights as you go like, oh, here's where I fit in. Praise God for that. But notice, as we see it in context, this is a parable about Jesus and his judgment. And Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. He's the good shepherd. So why is there a description of his disciples and the way they care for others? Because their care for others is evidence that they belong to him. It's not the basis for them belonging to him. He isn't saying that those who care for the poor will be mine. He's saying those that are mine will care for the poor. You will know them, he says elsewhere, by their fruit. Especially even, he says, my, the, the least, my brothers, speaking of disciples, the local church. So are we just supposed to leave now and serve the poor? Not so fast. That's not necessarily the case. But instead, we're meant to see our care for people in need as evidence of our understanding of our great benefactor. Our own generous benevolence is a result of experiencing generous benevolence. Make no mistake about it. Christians have the ability to look at those in need, those around us that are hopeless and helpless, and see themselves. Because we, above all, know that in our sin, dead in our trespasses, how hopeless and helpless we were and how kind and gracious Jesus was to draw us out. How merciful he was to lead us away. And so now we have a deep, a deep concern for those who need help. Some of you know this. Some of, this, is, this is natural in some of you. Like some of you, I know you, maybe you're, you're an immigrant uh, you're a, or, a, or the, a, a descendant of an immigrant. And you by virtue of that, have a deep compassion for immigrants, for refugees. Praise God for this. Because you look at them and see something in yourself. Some of you are child of or, or, or even just a, a recent kind of participant. That's not the right way to say this at all, but like you've, you've witnessed or been a part of divorce and seen what it does to a family. And so as a result, many of you have a deep, deep compassion for those experiencing or have, who those who have experienced divorce. It goes on and on your own story of experiencing deliverance through hardship gives you a deep compassion for people like you. You see yourself in them. You remember what it was like to need help. You remember how difficult it was, and now your heart goes out to them. See that as a picture here. Look through that lens to see how you and I, when we look at those who are naked, we remember what it was like to be naked. Think of the story of the garden. That's what sin does. It makes us feel bereft. It makes us feel like we don't have anything, and and yet we know that God has clothed us in Christ. We look at people who experience loss and hardship, and we know what it's like to experience deliverance. So friend, see this for what it is. We know his voice because he has cared for us. Our care for the world, join me in this and praying for this, is simply the overflow so even now, as you hear this, if you find yourself going like, oh, shoot, I need, to, I need to be better at that, right? Stop for a minute. That might be true, but heed the warning. The problem isn't that you don't see the hurting in the world. The problem is you don't see the great benefactor who has helped us in our hurt. 
And when you see him clothing us, feeding us, sustaining us, caring for us, it changes you. And notice that it changes us at the heart level. Notice that he doesn't say like, okay, now go and overhaul the criminal justice system and bring systemic, right, and bring systemic injustices to an end, right? He doesn't say go alleviate all of poverty. He doesn't say those things. Although I pray to God that that's what you do. I pray that in your vocation and what you do, what God has entrusted to you, I, I pray that suffering is alleviated. I, people, people are comforted and cared for because of what you do in the world. But make no mistake about it. What he asks of them isn't that they would, in this sense, alleviate the suffering. Did you hear what he said he expects of them? that they would get into the suffering with them, that they would visit them, care for them. Because after all, you can look to alleviate poverty and alleviate the suffering in the world, and I praise God, I'm praying for ways to do that, but that's not a substitute for a heart that's been changed by one who has been cared for by the Father. Maybe think of it this way, your job and mine is not to eradicate all the suffering and the evil in the world. Your job and mine is to tell the world about the one who has. But notice the grace. Notice the grace. Notice the grace and the talents. The master entrusted to the care of these people. Notice the grace and the invitation for these people to a feast and to a wedding. Notice it already is present. And think about this encouragement to us. I, 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 before we wrap up, I want to speak specifically. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. And one of the main reasons I want you to, to hear these words of Jesus, and why I can commend the Bible to, to be trustworthy to you, is how honest it is about the world. Notice, one of our first objections is usually, how can I believe there's a good God with X suffering or awfulness in the world? And I love how Jesus doesn't shy away from it. He's very honest. In this world, as you wait, it will be difficult. The things that you want to come about will not come about on your own timeline. They will not come about the way that you wish they would. But mind you, those aren't meant to be reminders that there is no God. Those are meant to be reminders that there is a God and you're not Him. And our waiting is a constant and daily acknowledgement that if He doesn't return to restore all things, we're more hopeless than anyone. Look how honest it is. The encouragement of the New Testament addresses this very clearly. Paul tells the, the church at Rome, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a glory that's coming. It doesn't minimize your suffering or mine. It doesn't minimize the suffering and injustice in the world. It doesn't minimize it all. It just says there's a glory that's on its way that's beyond what you could even ask or imagine. He encourages uh, the church at Corinth the same way. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Listen to the encouragement he gives to you and me, especially to maybe if you're in this room and waiting has worn you out. Hear the encouragement he gives. So, why would you trust or find it to be good news that Jesus is coming back to judge? I'll give you a couple of reasons, and they're a paradox, I admit. They're a paradox we receive by faith because they will be counterintuitive. You see, for Christians, judgment day is really good news. And I know that's weird, right? Even now, as you're, as you're in this room, you're like, how, this guy's talking about judgment and, and wrath and weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he's, he doesn't even have a frown on his face, right? Like, that's weird, right? I, I, I get... But notice, that's because for Christians, Judgment Day is good news. And here's why. Number one, 
He knows everything. He knows everything. I know for many of you in this room, one of your deepest fears is that you are forgotten, that you are abandoned. I know for many of you, one of your deepest fears is that your life is meaningless and worthless. There is no purpose or value to you. Listen to the good news of Judgment Day. Our God knows and sees everything. There's not a moment of your entire life that you have been forsaken or abandoned. Our God knows everything. And so the fact that Jesus comes back to judge every single motive, word, action, right? That is good news for us. Here's a second reason why it's good news. Not just that he knows everything, but because he will right every wrong. Everything. Every wound, every single injustice, every single thing that, is, that has been done to you or you've seen done to others. Every single, think of it this way, God is too righteous and too good to abide by it. God is too righteous and too good to allow that to continue. And so the days that you wait and you're thinking, oh God, when? When will this happen? Like, how long will this go on? Think of the language of the psalmists. Judgment Day is good news because we know that God not only knows everything, but he will come and return to right every wrong. But here's the greatest paradox of why Judgment Day is good news for you and for me. I'll lean on an analogy from a 20th, early 20th century theologian who described it this way. Imagine, if you will, a courtroom. Imagine, if you will, a courtroom where a wise, righteous, benevolent judge is ruling, executing justice from his bench. Now imagine that judge in his courtroom being wise, right, ethically upright, sees a criminal who is justly accused who has done wicked and awful things. Now imagine in his righteousness and goodness, this judge can't abide by this. After all, he would disgrace and insult the victims of this person's behavior. And the judge looks at this like, duly deserving criminal and pours out all of the justice and punishment he can. Think of, think of uh, from this judge's bench, the, the declaration of punishment, the execution of a sentence, all declared his guilt and even the punishment that's deserved to this criminal. It's all poured out from the top of that bench down. Now stop for a moment, and I'll imagine in this picture something amazing and miraculous happens. As the execution of justice and sentence is rightly going to the unjust criminal. Imagine the judge quickly and miraculously jumping out in front of his sentence and standing in between the righteous sentence and the unrighteous criminal and bearing the full weight of it. You see, for us, judgment day is good news because it was a day when the judge was judged in our place. The righteous judgment of God poured out on sinners was miraculously and graciously absorbed by the judge himself as the sentence was coming down on criminals who deserved the execution of justice this justice left his bench it's as if his own gavel fell on himself he was judged in our place and here's the miracle that we celebrate as a result in just a moment we're going to celebrate communion we're going to meet at the lord's table and we're going to and we're going to celebrate this paradox, the judgment of God we're going to celebrate in a paradox. And it's this. Do you remember what I, what I asked you? What are you waiting for? The question for us isn't what are you waiting for? It's who are you waiting for? And here's why you can wait for and trust this judge. 
for those who are united to Christ by faith, Judgment Day is now completely and totally in the past. Make no mistake about it, these warnings Jesus gives are gracious. After all, the fact that he gives us warnings means that it's not too late. If you're in this room and you hear these warnings of Jesus, they're meant to be an encouragement. Oh, thank God, it's not too late. He's warned me and I hear it. But also notice they're not threats. They're not meant to stir up some sort of fear that will wear off by the end of the day. They're not idle threats like you and I would make. These are genuine warnings of that which is to come. And so I don't take this lightly when I say this, when I'm quoting Jesus here, but think of it this way. For those who have rejected the invitation of God to the wedding feast of his son, for those who have rejected the sovereignty and goodness of God and the stewardship they have in the world, and for those who have not experienced or been changed by the compassion of his great benevolence, judgment day is in the future. For those in this room, if you've rejected God's invitation to experience grace, new and transformed life in Jesus, I want to, again, I don't say this lightly, it's not to scare you as if fear could motivate you. But hear the warning of Jesus. For you, judgment day is in the future. And it will be sooner than you think. It will be worse than you think. It will be unimaginable for you. But hear the good news of these parables and these predictions. Judgment day for the Christian has already come and gone. Because as you and I hear the judgments of these passages, the imagery of these judgments remind us of someone. Do you remember the first one? That they would be shut out. They would be left out into the dark. And they wouldn't even know. The the masters, I don't even know you. Can you hear Jesus from the cross crying out to the Father, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? When you hear the judgment of the, the second picture, the businessman, right? They'll be cast outside to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You and I see through the eyes of faith the, the letter or the, the, the words of the, the writer of Hebrews that Jesus once for all went outside the camp. He went outside to the place of the skull, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then lastly, he was the one who was cast out. He is the one who bore the reproach, naked, embarrassed, and betrayed publicly. So that, friend, you and I can celebrate. There is a judgment day, righteous and good judgment against sin. But for you and me, that day has come and gone. When the righteous judge of the universe went to a cross and bore the punishment that you and I deserve, and lo and behold, the feast is amazing, Because that punishment did not get the last word. On the third day, he rose victorious to vindicate all those who had experienced the kind of forgiveness and comfort that was offered to them. In a moment, someone's going to invite you to a table. A table that takes sin very seriously. A table that says that sin demands the cost of flesh and blood. But praise God, the flesh and blood demanded at this table was supplied by Jesus. So in just a moment, we're going to begin to reflect upon the judgment day that has come and gone for you and for me who have placed our faith in Jesus, who has borne the full wrath and weight of the punishment of God so that you and I would know what? A feast, the joy of the master, and the voice of our shepherd.
Let's pray together as we prepare to respond in faith. God, thank you so much that you have not abandoned us to our own devices to save ourselves. Thank you that you have stepped out of the throne room of heaven. So I pray that you would even now comfort. There are those in this room that even now they feel abandoned, they feel forgotten. Would you encourage them with these parables? Would they be able to see through the judgment and see the the goodness of God that they are not forgotten? You know and see every little thing. It's not a moment of our lives that has been forgotten by you. Would you encourage many in this room with that? Then there's some in this room, maybe we know that, but we we feel the weight of shame and judgment that comes with that. Would you remind them that you have come to bear sin. You have come to bear the full weight of the wrath of God. You have borne their sorrows. You have come as a man who was lowly, despised. So that in those places where we feel the most shame, we would begin to feel freedom. Lastly, Lord, would you begin to soften our hearts? Give us a taste of the compassion you've shown us in Christ as our great benefactor, such that it changes our sense of compassion to one another and to the world, that we begin to meet needs and care for one another in a supernatural way. Lord, thank you that you've come to intercede for us. You've taken the judgment that we deserve such that the mystery we celebrate in a moment is that while there was judgment at this table, that judgment was borne by Christ. So that's all that's left for us to do by faith is to feast. Thank you for this invitation in Jesus' name. Amen.